Just give me money. It's taken me over, well, let's see what it has been now, almost 50 years to realize that a lot of sermons that I've heard over the years uh, could have been easily translated in, by this song. Just give me money. That's really what I want. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of The Unhappy Christian. My name is Dr. Rick Peterson. I am your host for this series of podcasts where we talk about moving away from counterfeit Christianity and the toxic spirituality it produces and back into the green pastures of genuine Christian faith as it is marked by joyful spiritual living. So money, that's a big topic. And I mean it when I say that I, it's taken me at least 40 years to realize and come out of my own state of, of uh, denial that uh, many, many sermons that I've heard and most conversations I've had with even well-meaning but misguided pastors has to do with this professionalism that ultimately has to do with money, has to do with even if it's just fear of, a, of gaining and maintaining a stipend, a pastoral salary. It's about money. And then you have on the way on the other uh, spectrum, you have the Kenneth Copelands of the world and those who are clearly charlatans who are striving only to get into your billfold, get into your purse. And so um, uh, it's, it's stunning to think. I, I told my wife over the weekend, I played this, this opening tune by the Beatles to her, and I said, you know, um, she said, I've never heard that song before. <laughs> I said, well, it's certainly appropriate these days. Um, it's, it's a good televangelist's um, theme song. And I said, and the, the sermons that I've heard over the years, if you could put a translator window on it, a translator filter on it, that's what would come across. Just give me money. That's what I want. It's a sad commentary, but let me begin by reviewing what we're talking about here and recovering the Christian mind. Today, I do want to talk about giving and recovering the Christian mind regarding giving. But before I do that, let me just remind you what we're doing in this, this most recent series. We're talking about how that the spiritual warfare that is being waged in the world today centers on the Christian mind. It centers, uh, it's a battle for the mind. And it centers in how we think, and therefore how we view our own faith, how we view the world, how we view church buildings, our understanding of the church, the definition that we have of the church. I've told you that um, it's buildings that defines the church today. Uh, I've, I've mentioned to you in my first uh, podcast on this topic uh, that how that since Constantine in 313 AD that the church has moved away from seeing itself as the people of God gathered, being the people themselves, and into the basilica, into the hallowed spaces, the structures of sacrificial services and the spectacle of priestcraft. And so 
Uh, we, I talked with you about how that in the recent uh, tragic weather events throughout the country that there have been reports uh, by the secular media of how churches have been destroyed, devastated by some of these tornadoes and other weather events. And it's reported like that. This church or that church has been utterly leveled by this recent tornado. Um, and which, again, I, I, I don't want to split hairs, but, but words have meaning. Words matter. And so when we talk about how that a tornado can destroy a church, it's indi indicative of how we have um, lost our mind when it comes to what the church is. The church is not a building, no matter if it's a uh, landmark, historic landmark or not. It's, it, the church is, it's, is the people, the people of God, in, in among whom the presence of God dwells. The temple of God is the individual believer in whom the Holy Spirit takes up residence and mediates our relationship with the Father and the Son. And then we together gathered are the temple of God. Uh, it, it is no longer a visible, physical structure. So when you go walking into any, to anything from the Vatican to the smallest little Baptist church in Arkansas, there's still that... that um, latent thinking that somehow you're walking into the church when really that's just a holdover from the Constantinian um, tragedy of redefining the church. Church is not something we go to. Some church is something that we are. We may gather as the church and we may gather in a building, but God wasn't there waiting for us. We, he, God's there because we're there. And when we leave, he leaves. Now I recognize, don't get me wrong, I, I understand there's God's omnipresence, that he's everywhere. But you understand what I'm saying. That God's primary residence is within and among his people. And so, um, home is not a place it's a family, somebody once said. And I like that a lot. I think that was out of a movie called uh, Concrete Cowboys. That was a line out of that movie. Home is not a place. It's a family. And so we've, we have to re redo our, our thinking. We have to reframe our, our understanding. Uh, we have to recapture our mind about what the church is. Still today, you'll hear people say, well, where do you go to church? Well, I go to the church down here at this little uh, First Baptist Church of whatever, and or whatever the name of the church. Oh, yes, that little brick building down here on the corner. Yes, that's where we go to church. Those are very telling things, folks. But we, we, we don't have a building any longer. Jesus declared that in John chapter 2, that, that his body is the temple. And that we are his body. The people are his body. So, and then I talked with you last time about recovering our mind regarding the clergy. And that how fallen human nature always seeks to dominate others. Always seeks to rule or lord over others. Jesus referred to it as the way of the Gentiles. How they 
seek to lord it over each other. And he told his disciples in Matthew 20 that it shall not be so among you. It shall not be so among you, but of course it is. In Matthew 23, he tells us to not uh, call anyone on earth father. He tells us not to um, call anyone on earth teacher or even leader. For Christ is these things to us. But I don't know that we take him serious. We read texts like that. And we Yeah, yeah, oh, that, that's really nice. And then we go to church and call it Father John or Father Bert or Father Harry or Father Mary these days. And they these elevated clergy lorded over our faith. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, 23-24 that he did not lord it over their faith. He's clear in 1 Corinthians that that uh, he is he is simply a servant. He and Apollos are simply servants through whom they receive the gospel. I mean, if any group of men could have really elevated themselves and had themselves clad in fine clothing and had nice basilicas built for them and had them placed in memorial, it would have been the apostles. But they didn't do that. I mean, read um, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that talks about Paul's life. Actually, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul talks about from verse 21 down through uh, verse 29 of what what it really meant to be an apostle labors, and uh, dangers, 39 lashes, beaten with rods, stoned, three times shipwrecked, a night and day spent in the deep. He's been on frequent journeys, he says, and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. He goes on to say in verse 27, I have been in labors and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Does that sound like any modern preacher that you know? Does that sound like any modern uh, group of men who are running around calling themselves apostles these days? See, this is, this is how far, folks, we have drifted from the dock. Now, why is this important? Am I just on a rant? Why is this important to us? It's important because it affects us spiritually. And thus, therefore, mentally. You'd be surprised how many people walk around, how many professing Christians walk around spiritually depressed spiritually empty, spiritually hungry and thirsty. But they simply put up with it. It, it, it the, the imagery of the church being a building and the elevated clergy and all that goes with it has become so common, so normative, 
and it robs us of our spiritual vitality to the point where we just still just put up with it, you know. Let me just read you a paragraph that I have started in a paper I'm writing on this topic, and then I'll talk a little bit more about giving. Um, we'll probably have to come back to that in, in a second, uh, in the next episode as well, the second topic of giving. But um, the title of this paper is Recovering the Christian Mind. How Western Christianity has lost its collective mind and, and what to do about it. If it wasn't so tragic, it would be funny. But people don't come into my counseling office because they're having a good day, and most of them are Christians. And most of them have serious issues going on in their life. Now, I recognize there are some things that people stumble into and there there's self-willed situations and there's there's uh, issues of addiction and so on that, that maybe have nothing to do with the church they're going to. But the majority of the time, they are suffering spiritually. And if you're suffering spiritually, you're going to be suffering mentally and physically, financially, relationally. You're going to be suffering on many levels. But it all at the taproot is about your spiritual health. And what I'm appealing to you to recognize is that uh, this perversion of our minds, this, this distortion, this seduction of our minds by the evangelical industrial complex and the, and the worldly form of religion masking as Christianity is a killer. It's, it's deadly. And I've said it in the past, and I'll say it again. Your unhappiness, if you're a Christian and you're unhappy with your Christian experience and you're suffering within your Christian experience, don't hesitate to reframe that as discernment. Don't just assume that you're just the unhappy one in the church, <laughs> that everybody else gets it, and that you just happen to be the unhappy one, the, 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 the uh, terminally flawed one. No, it could be very well be that you are just experiencing a good deal, a good dose of discernment. And you need to dig into the text of Scripture and pray fervently for guidance. And it may very well be, folks, in order to get well, that you have to come out of that environment and find fellowship, much smaller fellowship, maybe fellowship in your home, but you will enjoy, begin to enjoy the breath of fresh air that goes through your soul and the clarity and the soundness of mind that returns when you get away from all of that clamor and bang and noise of the charlatans and the, and the uh, distortion of the gospel. That's so very prevalent today. Well, let me just... Again, read you a, a little portion here. Second Corinthians, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful letter of comfort. But it's also a wonderful letter where Paul makes very clear the contrast between his apostolic ministry and the counterfeit that existed even during his time. I write that in his second letter to the church at Corinth, the Apostle Paul is contending 
with serious opposition to his ministry from a group of men claiming to be apostles. And although by the time of this letter the opposition has diminished, Paul nonetheless has stepped up his appeal in order to eliminate it altogether. And he does this by drawing stark contrasts between himself and those false apostles. For instance, he defines the ministry of he and his associates as being marked by sincerity, as men from God in Christ, speaking, quote, in the sight of God, end quote. But he refers to his opposition as crafty men, men who peddle and adulterate the word of God. He uses those phrases, folks. If you haven't read that, read 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verse 17, and 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. He uses that language, that these are people who peddle the word of God. The imagery there is of the, of the junk salesman who goes around with a wagon selling junk. Peddler wants to sell you a piece of furniture or a moose head or <laughs> a can or, you know, old toilet, maybe a hat rack. He's just peddling junk. And Paul's saying these guys are just peddling and they're treating the word of God as just another product to be marketed, to be, to be used to um, separate you from your money. The contrast continues later in the uh, in Second Corinthians in chapter three, when Paul refers to his opposition as uh, ministers of the old covenant, the old covenant of the letter that kills. Whereas he and his associates, Paul and his associates, are ministers of the new covenant of the Spirit of life, the Spirit versus the letter, life versus death. I don't know that Paul could draw any greater contrast. There, there's no ecumenical drive here by Paul. He's not trying to find common ground with these guys. He's saying these guys are ministers of death. They have so perverted the gospel by clinging to the old covenant that they've actually become ministers of the letter and thus of death whereas he and his associates are ministers of the spirit of life. So, my text for this series is 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, and this is why I'm re referring to it as a recovery of your mind. Paul says in that chapter in verse 3, see, he says, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. It's easy to say you're Christ-centered. It's easy for an organization to say it's a Christian organization. But these false apostles represented themselves as ministers of Christ as well. What comes through in, in Paul's letters is this incredible passion that he has in his own simplicity and his own devotion to Jesus Christ. 
This is a man for whom life was about one thing, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He had no designs on the people to whom he ministered. He had no agenda of setting up an organization and then marketing that organization in those locations. He simply wanted these people to know and understand and fellowship with the Father and with the Son through the Holy Spirit in the same way he did. So he tells them, however, that they're being seduced, that their minds are being seduced by these teachers who come in teaching another Jesus, another gospel, and another spirit operating under a different spirit, not the Holy Spirit, which is very ominous in itself, isn't it? And then in verse 7, he says, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? So he's introducing now this topic of money. The false teachers had come in and they were uh, advancing themselves as being very credentialed, very uh, eloquent, oratory, uh, orators. They were very um, worthy, they told the people, of, of their fees. They charged for their teaching. And Paul said, well, Apparently, I've done something wrong. I've, have I committed a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? I preach the gospel of God to you without charge. 2 Corinthians eleven seven. He says in verse 8, I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. As a missionary, as an uh, apostle, he didn't want to just be one among many orators in the city. He didn't want to just appear to just take his place amongst the many um, peddlers who were coming into cities and marketing their latest philosophy. And he separated himself by not charging them, by, but rather appealing to them with the gospel. He says, I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. Other churches offered him support to be able to meet the needs of he and his associates and, and went out to these other cities without having to be worried about what they were going to eat and sleep and where they eat and drink and where they were going to sleep. Verse 9, he says, And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need, and in everything I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. So Paul wasn't about setting up an organization and then promoting himself in his ministry and then gathering the elders and the treasurer of the church into the office one day and demanding a big fat salary. Paul was interested only in declaring to them the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So there's a um, contrast here. 
even in giving. So let's let me expand further on that now. But Paul preached without charge. By the way, there's no record of Jesus ever being paid. Do you know that? There's no record that uh, that Jesus ever got paid for any of his sermons. He never got an honorarium. He never got a stipend. There were certain women of affluence that who and influence who followed him around, he and his disciples, and supported them out of their means. But Jesus never collected a stipend. He never collected a honorarium. Whereas the Judaizers were clear that they these were fee-based hirelings. Just as they're described by Jesus in John chapter 10, verse 12. People who were professionals. Professional clergymen. I would... <laughs> Again, I'm not just ranting here. These are very serious things, this contrast. And I believe that we are in a time when the Lord is calling his sheep out of that evangelical sheep pen and into fellowship with one another where we recover our mind on these topics of, of um, buildings and recover our biblical thinking on the topic of leaders and and giving as well. There's a, a couple stories I want to share with you. One of them is about a wildly popular Presbyterian Reformed leader many decades ago. He's gone now. He's died. But he, uh, the story goes that he uh, wanted was asked to speak at a church was having a, a big gathering. They wanted this guy to come and, and honor them with his presence and, and give them a, a word of exhortation. And he sent them a letter back. His office sent him a letter back, them a letter back, saying that he would be happy to come, but there were some conditions. First of all, he wanted to have first-class seats on an airplane, first-class flights. He demanded a negotiated fee up front, and... He wanted to um, have a guaranteed number of people there, or he wouldn't come. You see the contrast between that kind of thinking? That, that, that is a man who had lost his mind. <laughs> that is a man who had been, his mind had been led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. I once attended a membership class in a rather large megachurch in which the, the topic of giving was held to the very last point in the membership class. And as a, the pastor began to introduce his fallacious reasoning and fallacious distortion of Scripture and twisting of Scripture in order to justify his view of giving and tithing especially, somebody raised their hand and they said, Pastor, what would happen if we didn't tithe? And I'll never forget, this man got visibly angry. He stepped forward on the stage, looked at that man who asked the question, and said, I'll tell you what would happen to the church. There would be no church without tithing. Think about that. 
I'll tell you what would happen to the church. There would be no church without tithing. Clearly, Jesus can't build his church without tithing. What can't be built is his organization. What can't be built is this pastor's organization. And what can't be maintained is the millions of dollars that go into pastoral salaries and staff. That can't be maintained. But the church, see, there you go. We're going back to the beginning here. His understanding of the church was so fallacious that it took a false teaching about tithing in order to support that understanding. My wife once worked with a woman who was a pastor at a local church, and uh, and her husband uh, was told that if he didn't tie, that he wouldn't rise in the ranks. He would there would be he would have no shot at ever being the senior pastor. And she was struggling. She confided with my wife that she was struggling. They were struggling to pay the bills and struggling to keep food on the table, uh, and that. But they, were, they had to set aside this 10% of their gross income, and this church was making note of it, because if he had any hope of career advancement, they had to be careful to uh, tithe. Another friend of mine, one last story, another friend of mine, early in his life, decided he wanted to be a pastor. He felt the Lord was calling him to be a pastor. So he went to his senior pastor, which is another term that doesn't fit with scripture rationale. Anyway, he went to this pastor, and uh, the founder of the church, and he said, I, I'd like to be a pastor. And this man, who was really biblically charged with equipping and helping bring in this, my friend, into mat maturity, instead said, show me your checkbook. So my friend reached in, handed him this checkbook, and this pastor, this senior pastor, flipped to the man's checkbook and said, "Boy, I don't see a lot of giving here in the church in the giving in the check register." So he tossed the checkbook back at my friend and said, "You start tithing for 6 months and then we'll talk about you being a pastor." So my friend went home, told his wife that day, "We're going to start tithing come this Sunday." We called that simony back in the old days. John Wycliffe, back in the 13th century, wrote a book called On Simony. And simony simply means that you're trying to buy the your position, trying to buy the gifts of the Spirit. It's taken from Acts chapter 10, I believe it is, when Simon the sorcerer tried to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit. He tried to buy the ability to convey the Holy Spirit and lay hands on people. And Peter said, your money perish with you. You have no part in this ministry whatsoever. And so down through the ages, that sin has been called the sin of simony. After Simon the sorcerer. But this is a case where this man was committing simony. In essence, he was telling this, this young man, my friend, you, you can be a pastor, but you're going to have to come up with some dough up front and show that you're, you're, you're a regular tither. 
did talk to him about whether or not he was a faithful giver, that he was caring for the poor, that he was caring for the widows in his family, that he was caring for those in need. He just wanted to make sure that the big 10% of the girls was coming into the church coffers. The early church gave to support the weak, the hungry, the orphan, the widow, those in need. The modern church emphasizes giving in order to pay salaries, overhead, the building, to maintain professionals in their career path. I know one church recently released a $5 million budget just to pay salaries for staff and pastors. So, men pervert, they twist, they distort the text to force it to say what it doesn't say about giving. But this isn't uncommon. In Mark chapter 7, Paul, uh, excuse me, Jesus renounced the tradition of the elders. He rebuked the Pharisees for taking that amount of money, those funds that could be used to, to care for a person's parents, and declaring it korban, meaning dedicated to God. And so they simply can't help their parents. They can't help sustain them in their old age. Because I've given it to God. Jesus said, you have a fine way of setting aside the word of God in order to serve your tradition. So this is not new. But the problem is that it's become acceptable. And that's what I'm appealing to you with. I'm appealing to you to stop making it acceptable. Let me refer back to 2 Corinthians 11 again, and then we'll close this episode and then next time we'll get together, I want to talk with you about some specific texts. For instance, Genesis 14, I think it is, and Malachi 3, 8 through 12, the big open the windows of heaven, pour out a blessing or come under a curse if you don't tithe text. And other texts that, uh, that are used, like Matthew 23, where people say, oh, no, no, Jesus commended tithing. These are texts that are very commonly distorted, twisted, and completely taken out of context uh, in order to support this notion of compulsory giving. But um, we put up with it. And so I'm appealing to you to consider these things. Let's recover our mind. And essence, what I'm saying to you in closing is that our minds have been led astray. Over the decades, for especially the last 50 years, our minds have been led astray, both in the evangelical and the Pentecostal world, and it's time to recover our mind. It's time to stop putting up with it. Again, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, 4, for if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit whom you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. End quote. So it's, it's not only... The problem isn't that just that there are charlatans and 
thieves and hirelings out there. There's always going to be. They always have been and there always will be. The problem is, is that we put up with it beautifully. We rationalize it. We justify it. We find a way to minimize its impact on us. But in the final analysis, folks, Jesus was serious when he said that the thief comes but to do three things, to steal, to kill, and destroy. And it's really time for us to say no to this stuff. It's really time to say no to the angel of light and his false apostles, his false ministers of righteousness, masquerading themselves as Christian ministers. It's really time for us to sharpen our discernment and come out of this thing and recapture the joy of the simplicity and the devotion to Christ himself that allows us to be givers, freely givers, delight, cheerful givers to people who need it, to each other, to those who are suffering, to those who are in need. Now you say, well, there's a lot of churches that do a lot of good, Rick. Yeah, I know, there are. There's a lot of church that have, churches who have food banks and a lot of churches that deliver meals to the, uh, to the elderly and things like that. I know that there are. And maybe those churches teach tithing. But they wouldn't have to stop doing those good works. They don't have to pervert the text of Scripture and lie to you about, about the nature of giving in order to do those good works. Remember, it's not the church that does the good works. It's the people who do the good works. It's you and me that do the good works. So don't be bamboozled into thinking that if you don't give 10% of your gross income that somehow the food bank's going to get shut down or the, the, the elderly are not going to get their free meals or some other good work is going to die out. So we'll pick it up here next time. We'll pick it up and talk about those specific texts point by point because that everyone who bullies you into giving them your money will be talking about these texts. And they've got it all well laid out. And so we want to be very careful not to get into this um, trap and come out of it. So I want to walk you through each one of these texts and then take our brief time and equip you to answer that and answer those bullies. So may the Lord bless you and to keep you. And it's time. The music has come. <laughs> I'll see you next time. Amen. God bless you. <laughs>